Turkey hunting is one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt when I'm hunting turkeys. It is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light. Go farther, stay longer. All right, Spencer, we got a lot to do, but how, how quick do you think you can do your Arkansas on update? Quick, I think. Arkansas update. How, but set up why why isn't up like why? We talked in the past about the term Arkansasing something. Yeah. How it means different things to different people. It means popping up and shooting a duck off the water. That's right. Or you or could Arkansas grouse. Shooting a pheasant out of the ditch. Shooting a dove off a power line. Did we mention no, when we No, no, that is not Arkansas. It's not? You can't, you can't Arkansas a dove off a power line. Why not? Why not? It'd just be shooting a dove off a power line. Arkansas is shooting it on the ground. All right. Well, let's, let, let's get in. Like, this. if you shot a turkey out of a tree, God forbid, you wouldn't be saying you arkansas the turkey. Really? Uh, I, all right. Well, let's well, when he's on this. the ground, you don't arkansas him. I know. But that's what I'm saying. You're, you're like, arkansas means that you're sort of taking this, like, uh, an advantage over your quarry. No. And use, no? No, go ahead. That's, I, that's all I have to say. About my it. understanding and, 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 is my old man told me that in Arkansas, there's like a boat, an Arkansas boat, something you'd pull up on ducks and have all these 10 gauge shotguns lined out. And you'd, they're, they're one at water level, one slightly higher, one slightly higher. And as he explained to me, an Arkansas boat pulls up on a raft of ducks, boom, bottom, they start to take off, boom, the next gun, they start to take off, boom, the next volley's a little higher on rigged boat, rigged guns on boats. And that's my, that's what he told me. And that Mm. name, though, I thought you had said, was inspired by, like, the warship. I definitely never said that. Oh. 
a warship? Yeah, they, they were uh, the USS Arkansas. That's right. No, I I was pulling that's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I was pulling for your explanation to be correct, Steve. When when you brought that up, I'm like, okay, that's uh, that's like a cute explanation that makes sense. The warship, which that I've never no, heard no, no, of. No, no, no. Oh, the the duck boat thing. Too. Oh, okay, that's cute. Yeah, I think so. It like fits. All right. Can't find anything about it. Maybe mm-hmm. talk to my old man. <laughs> <laughs> I was even biased. Like if my... my dad had written down, here's how the internet works. Mm-hmm. If my old man had written down his theory and put it on an article, you would have searched and you'd have been like, oh, here's proof. Yes. I was pulling for you. I was even biased in my search, hoping to confirm what you said because I like that explanation so much. But. I found that Arkansasing as a term extends mm-hmm. way beyond just like a method of take. It's a derogatory term used all over hunting lingo and beyond. So you have an Arkansas limit, which is if you're allowed like 15 crappies and you take home 16. It's you like got, a baker's dozen. You got, an Arkansas, you got an Arkansas <laughs> limit. If, uh, if you're not allowed to shoot hen pheasants and you shoot a hen pheasant, then you got an Arkansas limit. Really? Yeah. We should just start calling it a nukem. Yeah, I don't like Clay Newcomb. There's it, hey, it gets hey, it gets worse. No, that's that's horrible because Clay's like a yeah. I didn't mean that. It gets worse here. So then, I was listen. I, I just want to clarify something. I wasn't making a comment on Clay's like <laughs> adherence to game laws. I was mm-hmm. more like his him being from Arkansas. Yeah, I I found um, an article written by somebody from Arkansas talking about the Arkansasing of America in 1992, which was written in advance of Bill Clinton becoming president, talking about <laughs> how. Arkansas is a term you can find all over the South that means a lot of different things. So that's that's where a lot of info is coming from. Also, uh, different forums where people talking about like, hey, what do you guys call it when you uh, like shoot something off a power line, or what do you call it when you shoot something off water? So that's that's where this info is coming from. So that's where so it just means taking folks, liberties, taking liberties with we got in, in our context, in yes. our context of what we deal with here on this program. It's taking liberties with game laws. Yes, and you'll you'll like these other examples. Then can you, you have, Arkansas your taxes? <laughs> probably, I'm sure. You have uh, now. Th- this was probably my favorite one. And there's terms, different terms for it all over the United States that I found in these different forums. If deer season opens on November second, mm-hmm. sunset on November first is referred to as the Arkansas opening. <laughs> or if you live in uh minnesota you might refer to it as the wisconsin opener or i found people in the north woods that would refer to it as the finnish opener or the polish opener so basically uh whatever group of folks you'd like to put down it's just insert here opener when i you know what's funny about that is when i was growing up you always hated like the real rednecks were always just north of you Mm. So if you were in Twin Lake, you knew that the real hellbillies were in Holton. Yeah. If you ask from from Holton who the real hellbillies were, they were from Hesperia. Mm-hmm. And it just marched up the state like that. <laughs> and that, these places are not far apart. Yeah. You know, but it was like a very like other, that's where the real poachers are, you know. When I, when I was a kid, um, I couldn't remember the difference between North Korea and South Korea. I grew up in South Dakota. And our history teacher told us in middle school, he said, well, you remember it like this. South Dakota is good and South Korea is good. North Korea is very bad. <laughs> North Dakota is very bad. Do you, uh, we're going to move on, but do you remember <laughs> when South Dakota, North, North Dakota did that play that North Dakota was going to change its name to Dakota? 
And South Dakota got pissed. I mean, this is uh no. Yeah. I don't I don't remember. It was like a PR stunt, but they're mm-hmm. they're gonna drop the North. They were gonna do whatever it takes to drop North and become Dakota. Like Virginia, West Virginia, right? They wanted to do that same thing and they thought it would help tourism out. Cause if you said to someone like, Hey man, you wanna go on uh on a vacation to Dakota? There you go. You know, it makes South seem like, I don't know, like whatever, some forgotten other part. Mm-hmm. It'd be like Virginia holds more, you know, I guess holds, eh, that, I, I'm not going to go with that. Um, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Now, now hold on though. I'm, I'm afraid you still think your Arkansas boat explanation is the correct one. Yeah, of course. I, I have other examples here to show you how Arkansas just uses derogatory term all over. You have Arkansas asphalt, which is a crummy road with potholes. <laughs> You can go on an Arkansas date, which is the same thing as going Dutch. You each pay for your own thing. Uh, you can Arkansas somebody out of something, which is like swindling, like that banker wants to Arkansas somebody out of his farm. You have uh, an Arkansas wedding cake. Do you want to take a guess as to what that is? Mm, a pie? Cornbread. <laughs> <laughs> you have an Arkansas strawberry, which is a hickey. And then in the... Card game of Euchre, you can get Arkansas, which is if you are trying to get like five tricks in Euchre and you come up with only three, you came up short. So now you're going to get Arkansas. Hmm. It's weird that that exists, but then there's also a type of duck hunting boat called an Arkansas <laughs> boat. <laughs> good, good try. <laughs> I kind of um, believe you. I kind of believe you, but I almost have to have, I'd have to, I'd have to talk to Clay about it too. I feel bad for. Have you uh, talked to Clay about it? A little bit in the past, and he he said they don't refer it as refer to it as that. But is he aware of it? Oh yeah. You come, oh, when you're in Arkansas and you Arkansas duck, what do they say? Well, okay, so you come across examples of this in forums where like somebody from Arkansas refers to it as Oklahoming, <laughs> or you have like somebody in Mississippi uh, that refers to it as Louisianaing or whatever. Hmm. But Arkansas seems to be a fairly agreed upon term. We have people from like Wyoming, Michigan, Illinois, like all over the country. Oh yeah, I was gonna ask if we could send if we could assign Spencer like a, another task here for the next podcast and come back with like the origins of Kentucky windage, mm-hmm. which I have always heard and and Seth corroborated that it's basically like the long hunters not taking real precise shots and just being like just hold four feet over its back. Yeah, but, it, but, is but it I, think it's, I think it's because I think it's I think it's a honorable thing. I think it's like you're talking about these these very like the long Kentucky long hunters with mm-hmm. Kentucky rifles, mm-hmm. these people who had were like very accurate, instinctive shooters. Or is it poking fun at the hunting culture in Kentucky? No, have you ever watched the, you ever watched the Al- Alamo? No. Where Billy Bob Thornton plays Boone. Doesn't he play Boone in the Alamo? Yeah. Billy Bob Thornton plays Boone and he goes to shoot, uh, he goes to shoot, uh, Mexican, officer at the Alamo and he licks his finger and holds it up in the air and then takes this crazy shot and kills the guy. I think that he's like, it was an homage to Kentucky windage. I like it. I can get behind that. And I I will be cheering for that explanation when I do some sleuthing. I want to move on to Yanni's mountain lion store, but I have one more thing to say, and this is a, a thing that I'd like to spend some time on at some point. 
as we recognize, like as we as a culture recognize that, you know, you shouldn't tell, don't tell Zvinanoli jokes, right? Don't tell Polish jokes. Like these are jokes that are insulting to people and they're prejudicial. Um, at what point, and this, I'm not the guy that invented this thought, but at what point, why is it still okay It'll always be okay. The one thing everyone can agree on that like one despicable thing is a poor Southern white person. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's like it winds up being that it's like, you can always dog on that in a movie. If you got a movie and you want a bad person to come out, the bad person will come out and it'll be like, let me guess. Right. Let me guess. Do you have examples? It still of that? goes on. Yeah. We were, I was watching a movie with my kids where it's like these, these wolf, it's a stupid movie where they got to move these. It's a, it's one of those movies where like the animals are the good guys and all the people are bad guys. Mm-hmm. And there's these guys that are doing like wolf removal in Canada. But sure enough, they come out and it sounds like American Southerners. Mm. It's a it's a stereotype that I don't I think it's going to be the last the, the the last standing stereotype would be that that uh you know an American southerner with a drawl is it'll be like the la- that'll be the last one to go away. Well, what do you think about that, Corinne? I think you're right. Oh, really? Yeah. That's that's I thought you're going to have a I thought that you would um No, I think feel that I was being that I was like uh that I didn't put that right. No, I think unfortunately that's right. I think that we have a stereotype kind of deeply seated that people who sound a certain way with a southern drawl, like that 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 and like intelligence don't go together. Yeah. And that that's just not. That's just ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, because I could still run around if I went and said to some people, um if I went to some enlightened folks and I said, "Oh yeah, he Arkansas a duck." They're not going to say like, "Dude, Come on. <laughs> They're not. No. Do you know what I mean? They're going to be like, oh, yeah. Those people. There was a show on Netflix <laughs> called The 100 Humans where they took 50 people and put them in an auditorium and they had a presentation done by someone with a British accent. And then that exact same person gave a presentation to another group of 50 people, the exact same presentation, word for word, minute for minute, but in a Southern accent. And then they had the, the audience like give them a score for what did you think of this person? And like, give us some commentary on them. And the person with the British accent got far better remarks, despite it being the exact same information. Yeah. The exact same. That words. is interesting and not surprising. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We got to do an update on sous vide. Are you guys more like sous vide? I never know what the hell to say. I used to say sous vide. Then I heard people that seem like they know more than me say sous vide. I think, I think the E at the end makes it a hard D. There you go. Sous vide. Two years of French in high school. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that makes you pretty qualified. Yeah, I think so too. Well, that would make me qualified on Spanish, and that's not true. Yeah, me too. While while we're on, <laughs> while we're on sous vide, since uh, my dad brought this up, and this is why we're gonna, we're continuing on this topic, um, I'm going to also go ahead and introduce uh, this morning uh, Stephen Ranella, Seth Morris, Spencer Newharth, Phil the engineer, and Corinne Schneider. Snyder. I always mess it up. Why Snyder's can't I... from that. Snyder was the mechanic in that show, Alice, wasn't he? <clears throat> Which one is it? I don't know. Smack me on my head and tell Schneider. me. Schneider. 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 What year is that reference from, Steve? I think they were reruns when I was a little boy. 
You I still, like. I told. I told Seth the other day he looked like Gomer Pyle. He didn't know what I was talking about. No. My, I guess. <laughs> I didn't either, and then I looked it up, and it's hilarious. <laughs> I got. I because see, I think that we only watched old shows when I was little, and I don't watch much anymore. So all my watching was already stuff that was already old. Somebody made the observation yesterday that the only pop culture references you like are from. The 80s. It 80s is the modern. That one. would be like that's. <laughs> I almost don't like though because it's too new. <laughs> like if I see someone who's like pretty ripped, I'll say that you know it looks like Lou Frigno. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> so, so uh, sous uh, sous vide. We're gonna have to put this one to rest because I gotta explain now. This is an uh, update about an update. A long time ago, I hate to even review this for people. A long time ago, I'm trying to do as quick as possible. Guy wrote in saying, "Hey man." My wife, we were doing a home birth, and some people that do a home birth find it's more comfortable to do it in a heated tub. They were heating the tub for the new baby to emerge into the world by dipping a sous vide apparatus in there, which is like a thing you plug into your wall. Giannis's father, being a building inspector and generally hip to human safety, writes in and says, when you're in a tub full of water, don't put plugged in things into it with you. And then we felt this probably useful to bring that up because, you know, how many movies do you see where someone gets in a tub and then drops like a whatever in there and gets electrocuted? Yeah. So he thought it's not made for that. Definitely don't suggest that. And then we talked about how does it work? Like, like how does liability work? Yanni was doing it cause he didn't want to, uh, uh, he didn't want his conscience. He didn't want dead infants on his conscience and, uh, newborns. And I didn't want liability. I think there's some crossover between us on those issues. So th- this lawyer writes in about how liability works in these kind of situations. And he was explaining there's a certain, you know, breed of lawyer who this is their bread and butter where a dumb person does something dumb and then wants to blame others when they get hurt. And this plaintiff's litigation becomes like a sort of legal extortion. So he says it, it plays out like this. Like a person listens to your podcast, right? They decide that, oh, I'm going to heat my tub up with a sous vide apparatus. They get shocked in the tub. They go to the hospital. They're sitting in the hospital and they see one of those uh, attorney commercials while they're recuperating. And it's one of those commercials. It's like car wreck, slip and fall, get the justice you deserve. They call that 1-800 number to get tough. They describe the circumstances and extent of their injuries. The plaintiff's attorney then does a little mental math and compares the severity usually quantified in hospital bills, to who are we going to sue? And as you trail this down, you're looking for a well-insured, well-funded, well-known person entity that could be liable. At that point, it's game on. It says in this sous vide scenario that we're explaining here, like someone hears it on this show, gets hurt. They call this like get tough attorney. He's going to start out, he's going to be curious about the sous vide manufacturer for a defective product design. He's going to be curious about the seller of the sous vide apparatus for selling a poorly designed product. He's going to be curious about the home unit building contractor, potentially for faulty construction or wiring. He's going to be curious about the home unit building electrician for the same reasons. He's going to get curious about the landlord for renting a potentially dangerous apartment. He's going to get curious about Meat Eater Inc. for negligence and promoting and encouraging dangerous practices. He's going to get curious about the particular people who are on the podcast and their personal capacity 
for negligence and promoting and encouraging dangerous practices and anyone else that he can think of. Then it's a classic situation where though no single individual is responsible, each one of these people has to participate in the litigation and therefore they carry inherent risk of exposure. What happens then is you go to each of these people and you lay out how you're thinking about this whole thing. The pitch is something like this. Look, you're going to have to defend this lawsuit no matter what. Like, no matter what we're coming after you. You're going to have to get lawyers and defend yourself. The way I'm going to pull this off, it's going to cost you 10000 bucks to defend yourself. What you can do is just give me that 10000 now, and I'll dismiss it. No embarrassments, no court, but that's how this is going to go down. You get a bunch of these people, they all agree to it, and you end up with a pretty decent total settlement. No one ever goes in to see a judge. There's no jury. Everybody just gets extorted out of their money. So don't put the damn sous vide deal in your tub. Or if, you, if, if, if you're thinking of suing Mediator, we're on to you. Yeah. I'll be like, you know what, bro? Bring it on. That's what I'm going to say. I'm going to be like, bring it on. Bring it on. Uh, that's where you get into that whole world. You know, you hear about countersuing, yeah. countersuing for Dan, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so here's a good segue. So uh, a listener did write in to say this. He heard, <laughs> here's where you learn that this does happen because a guy says he was listening to the podcast and heard about the sous vide birthing bath. It gave him an idea during the big Texas deep freeze, the 20, 2021 deep freeze when all of his power and gas was out. He did use a generator and a sous vide apparatus to heat water to then he set it and use his generator, heated his water to 113 degrees, filled a large shrimp pot, and then used that water to bathe, but not with the device in it. And he said, I would never have thought of this hadn't you boys mentioned it. <laughs> so he just used it to warm up the water. Right. And then he sat and bathed removed in a shrimp pot. the device and then cleaned up in his shrimp pot. So he also goes on. Here's where the here's where the grid segue comes in. He also goes on to explain that he works for an HVAC company. Interestingly, if he works for an HVAC company, how did he never think of this? <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> I used to be on, uh, you know, LinkedIn. I used to be on LinkedIn. I just recently got off it again. But all my like associates, I always be like some HVAC guy in Florida. You know, I'm like, I don't know. Are we, I don't, how are we going to help each other <laughs> in networking? <laughs> But sure, we can be partners. Um, he works for an HVAC company. Anyways, so they have a supply. This, this gets so convoluted. They have a supplier who has a big ranch, and they allow the, the employees to hunt the big ranch because they're all in the business relationship. Anyways, 2,500 Axis deer died on this ranch, froze to death on this ranch. Their entire population of black buck antelope died killed in that deep freeze they were loading them up in bucket loaders and burning the carcasses he's like i wish i would have been there would have gotten me a lot of free meat and man did we get a lot of feedback from people after seeing the big deep freeze of just mountains of dead animals and a lot of them like very highly esteemed um wild game species Right, like Neil Guy, you know, as, as our, our friend Jesse Griffiths explained, like Neil Guy in South Texas is a stand-in for beef. He's like, 
Ranchers sell cows. They eat meal guy. Um, they lost 80 some on their place. And it, it, it spurred this conversation. Like, why can't you, after the big deep freeze, why can you or can you not go out there and just send like give it to food banks or go out and cut all the backstraps out and live off it? So we're taking our questions to Dr. Professor Chris Calkins, meat scientist at University of Nebraska. And you might know Dr. Calkins because uh, he was on the show before. Our greatest episode ever. I can't remember what it was called. You can't remember. The Red Cutter. Red, oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Red Cutter. Great. Yeah, go, go. You want to learn a bunch of stuff about butchering and whatnot and, and safety protocol, uh, slaughter practices, all that stuff. Two two seven, two two seven. I listened to it twice. It was so good. Red Cutter, Chris Calkins. Well, thanks for the question. I uh, after that lead up introduction, I'm not sure I should say anything with all this litigation in the air. So, yeah, you didn't. You didn't realize right, how right way to get me started. Steve. <laughs> you didn't realize how liable uh, you were. <laughs> that's it. We we talked last time about the fact that when you harvest an animal that there is the risk that bacteria will migrate from the gut into the meat and create a food safety problem. That's regardless of the quality of the meat, there is that health risk. And so if we have an animal that dies um, because of a cold spell, uh, we have that same concern about duration between when death occurs and when you're able to remove the, the, the guts and r- remove that source of health risk from the animal. And so it's real easy to think about, gosh, if we're just freezing meat, then frozen meat is okay to eat, which certainly frozen meat is safe. But I, I would start by saying we need to remember that animals and people can freeze to death at at freezing temperatures. It, it, it doesn't have to be so many degrees below zero, and the body doesn't instantly freeze stiff. It, it takes a long time to remove the heat to be able to freeze something solid. And so that time duration between death and freezing of the meat is the time at which the health risk occurs. So that's a long way for me to say that if I come up on an animal that's frozen, I'm not interested in eating the meat because of a a health concern, a health consideration. Chris, can you explain the the process of death, the physiological processes of death? You know, in freezing temperatures, these animals in dying go through what? Well, you know, it's, uh, there's some similarities here between uh, the, what the animal experiences and what humans experience in a hypothermia case, right? So the body does two things. First of all, it tries to uh, retain heat, right? Prevent heat loss. So we do that by uh, closing down the blood vessels on our extremities, and we try and centralize the blood more toward the center of the animal. And of course, there's a whole lot of physiological stress that goes on. So we're going to dump adrenaline and cortisol and everything else into the bloodstream. And that's going to trigger a whole set of reactions. 
So the first thing that happens, the body tries to retain heat. And then secondly, it says, I'm getting cold. I need to produce heat. And so that production of heat, we start increasing metabolic rates. Uh, that causes, uh, in humans, we get muscle shivering. Uh, in animals, we're going to move to glycogen and fats as sources of energy because we have this energy deficit. And uh, the metabolic consequences of that, uh, ultimately, we, we change blood chemistry. Um, we start to produce uh, cold-induced production of urine. All of that disrupts the electrolytes. And eventually, the animal will die through uh, cardiac arrest. Oh, that's what winds up happening? Chris, I understand what you're saying about the, you know, the mystery of time of death. And I can also understand how someone would think, well, the animal fro like an animal froze to death, so it must have been, you know, it must have been preserved because we associate coldness with preservation. So I get that you'd have that that logical mistake of not realizing that it then still retains body heat for potentially hours and maybe never freezes. But let's say there was a situation where um, I know this is like, this is macabre, but let's say there's a situation where you, you see the animal expire. Okay. Um, so you know that it, it froze to death. I was there at the moment of death. What would you think at that point about like the quality of flesh of something that went through that kind of death when you compare it to in a controlled commercial atmosphere, they're looking for low stress, very quick death. Well, you're right. Commercially, that's exactly what the goal is, is low stress and quick death. But if you happen upon an animal and you happen to see its last breath, it expires because it's cold outside, that, that animal's still going to be warm. That body will not be in rigor mortis. It will be uh, very similar to what you see if you were to, to go shoot a deer. And uh, it might be cold outside, but you know, the temperature of the body itself is still going to be quite high. And so at that instant, uh, from a temperature standpoint, you could say, okay, I've found it quick enough. Now I have the possibility of maybe considering whether I want to save the meat or not. But, but think about all of those things that happened that caused that animal to expire. The blood chemistry is messed up. You have metabolic acidosis. The, the acid in the body has been produced. We start to see damage to the internal lining of the gut, which potentially could make it easier for bacteria to, to go. The blood is full of an extra dose of stress hormones. All of those things, even if you might be able to eat it and might, might think it's going to be okay, those are, those are not ideal conditions for how you would harvest meat from a game animal. And so you're really dealing with an animal that, remember, all of those conditions got so bad that the animal died as a result of the changed biochemistry inside that muscle. I wouldn't be anxious to bite into that kind of physiological situation in animals uh, as, a, as a result of, of the animal having frozen to death. Spring is a great time to do something with your family. 
do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside, planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing, taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times. I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, we got serious about life insurance. And man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 292 bucks per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Applying for tags each year in the West can be daunting. Yeah, I apply for everything everywhere. It's daunting. You have to go to a variety of sources to formulate your best guess as to where to apply. Well, this is a thing of the past now. Onyx just launched hunt research tools to simplify the process for all hunters. This tool helps organize the data that matters, makes comparing hunt options easy, and helps hunters develop a plan based on real metrics rather than gut feelings. OnX Hunt also offers all elite members a free digital membership to Hunt and Fool, who I use, for boots on the ground insight and knowledge, and a membership to Hunt Reminder so you never miss another deadline. Stop stressing over application season and apply with confidence in 2024. Check out OnX Hunt Research Tools, free for all OnX Hunt Elite members. Not an elite member? Well, let's fix that. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt. This is an app I use literally every day. I use it for every aspect of hunting, scouting, trapping, you name it. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Okay, let me hit you with with one more. Um, this, this is great. So... I already know the answer to this, but this is more of a less of a professional question, more of a personal question. I think I know the answer to it. When you look 
if you see footage like this um, or some of these images that came out of that deep freeze of just these massive mounds of dead animals, um, in your head, are you thinking, oh, there's some things that could be done or that we could do to salvage that or use that? Or are you just, you look and you're like, burn it, bury it. I mean, there's nothing to be done here. I mean, I, I like everybody else, I hate to see uh, product wasted. And so you're, I understand the tendency to want to say it ought to be okay to go ahead and eat this. Um, but if a, if, an, if a commercial animal died that way, our federal inspection system would not allow that product to be sold. Oh, that's so, interesting. Yeah. Um, there's a, there truly is uh, concerns and considerations about the aesthetics of how that animal died in addition to all the chemistry changes that are taking place that would really give you cause uh, to pause. Now, you know, you can always build a scenario that maybe we're freezing to death too, and if we don't eat, we die. And so in in a situation like that, would I be willing to eat the product? Well, you know, given the alternatives, perhaps so. But but, uh, every step along the way, you're increasing risk of, of, uh, in, to your health. And again, I emphasize that it got so bad for that animal that that animal's health was risked to the point where the animal died. And now you want to eat it? You know, if, you're, if you want to eat it when it starts getting cold, that's one thing. But to, 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 to take something that already died um, from, from a cold situation like this You've, that animal has already had a whole lot of metabolic changes taking place inside the body, trying to fight off that ultimate death. And when you when you take uh, that product, when you take that meat, then it has the consequence of all of those metabolic changes that have occurred that tried to keep that animal alive. And those are that that would be an unnatural amount of biological changes that you'd normally find when you shoot an animal or when an animal's commercially harvested for meat. Excellent. This is great. I'll finally be able to sleep at night without the guilt of having not run down to Texas. There you go. You know, in Nebraska here a few weeks ago, we had minus 31 degrees as a cold temperature in February. Now, that's not a typical. In fact, that was a record low temperature. Well, we didn't have every every wild animal or even every commercial animal in the state die. They're acclimated over the course of the winter to um, to accommodate some of those temperatures. And so that cold situation that occurred in Texas, and uh, my wife's from Texas, so I've, I've been there plenty and I, you know, it's a great state, but those animals were not acclimated to a sudden shift in temperature. So biologically, their response was greater than it would be for a, uh, an animal, for example, in Nebraska that would experience a similar condition. Huh. Yeah, that's a good point. Let me hit, uh, let me hit you another one. And I really appreciate that you're willing to um, entertain these kind of, you know, sort of strange out there questions. But they're legitimate questions because these are questions we get from people. We had recently right. had I, – I had recently put a photo – on Instagram that a, a lineman working in New York had found where a, I think it was a 4,800 volt overhead power line had collapsed. 
and it had landed on a, a buck. must have been summertime. Like it was a whitetail and still in velvet. Landed on the buck and, and obviously, you know, killed the buck and seemed to kind of burn a big, deep line across it. And then we had a lot of people send in photos of, you know, black bears that had climbed power lines, just how they would climb a tree, but climbed a power line and got electrocuted. All these things. I, I had no idea there was this much stuff out there being electrocuted. And when you consider that in a, in a commercial slaughter practice, as we discussed when you came on the show, you explained in great detail about during the slaughter process, how they do use um, electricity during the slaughter, like post, post-mortem electricity during the slaughter process. If you were sitting there and you saw all of a sudden like a, 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 a grade A steer, whatever the hell, like, a, like the perfect specimen, and it steps on a wire and wham, gets killed by electricity. Then what's in your head? Like, are you like, ooh, I better get my knife sharpened up? Or are you like, damn, there goes my good cow? Because it doesn't go through that process of like the body starting to have a stress response yeah, to anything. Just instantly right? it just, dead. It's fried. Yeah. So uh, in that case, you're dealing with instant death. And as we just talked about, you can you, you can use, but uh, it's not done for cattle, but uh, for for other species, you can use electricity. It is a USDA approved method of dispatch for animals. Oh, and it is. So if I'm standing there and that animal gets, uh, you know, the the bigger likelihood of what happens is a bolt of lightning, and every now and then there'll be a whole crowd of cattle crowded together, a bolt of lightning will come along and it'll it'll take out 20 or 30 animals. So that's a that's an instantaneous death. And you could certainly go harvest the product at that point and uh, just as if you'd shot your your animal and and you'd be good to go. So huh. as long as you got to it immediately after the electrocution, then I would say that that's that's uh, that's a legitimate cause of death for an animal happened quickly, not time for a real metabolic response and all the rest of those things, you're, you're probably good to go under that case. Now, if you, if you wander on that same uh, animal uh, and you can see that it was killed by electricity, but it's already stiff, it's already in rigor, you know, it could have been there six, eight hours or more. And once again, the time frame is way too long from death to harvest to to uh, to want to run a risk of capturing product under those conditions. Excellent. Glad we called. All right, Dr. Chris Calkins. Thank you very very much. Um, we need to get you here for real sometime. Yes, absolutely. I appreciate you joining us remotely. University of Nebraska, correct? That is correct. Yes. Thank you, sir. All right. Thanks, Thanks for Chris. Time. All right, Yanni, tell us your, uh, your, uh, tell us your, how, how you narrowly escaped death from a mountain lion. Buddy, I'm still shaking after that one. <laughs> uh, Zach Sandow and I, Zach from Onyx, were hunting uh, the uh, opening weekend of Montana's turkey season. And uh, I'll skip through the uh, part where uh, we didn't make the right moves in the morning to uh, get on these birds that we had so 
located so well the evening before, man. Like we went to sleep going like dead turkey in the morning. Sharpen sharpening <laughs> your knives. But yeah, what's that? Someone's got a saying about that. Roosted ain't roasted or something like that. <laughs> well, yeah, we were we were we were singing that song in the morning. Anyways, you, you we, also skipped the part where you killed one the day before. So you, you were already successful at this point. That's right. That's right. Different spot though. Nope, same spot. No. Same spot. Yeah. Um Mo- he's modest. I'll just start right out with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if I was to, the, the reason being is because uh, I shot the turkey, slowed it down a little bit, and then I did not have a window for a follow-up shot. Zach polished him off, oh. and um, he got, that was his bird, obviously. Yeah, I'd have quiet about that. Yeah. <laughs> he was trying to. <laughs> so uh, the next morning, so a couple hours into the morning, we're like, all right, this ain't working. And and luckily we can hear a distant gobbler like way on this ridge above us. And so we strip our layers off. This might have been the coldest turkey morning I've ever had. 23 degrees oh, when we got out of the really? truck. Yeah. They don't want to get out of the tree too early when that's going on sometimes. Yeah. I like I wore my puffy pants to the setup for that. That's incredible. So we strip off some layers. We we had about we figured we could have close to a thousand feet of uh, elevation gain, and uh, we get up there, and and one gobbler turns into like two, and then as we get closer, we realize there's quite a few gobblers going, and um, we're working in there. It's just real thick, a lot of uh, deadfall. There's been like a wind event in this area, and so just hard to kind of get through. Very a, a, a very, wind event. Yeah, wind event that just like oh, a big the trees, trees all flattened in the same direction. Well, just like you could tell, fresh trees have recently been I, blown over. I'm with you. I'm with you. And uh, it's it, it's just brushy. And it's real hard to move anywhere slowly, or sorry, quietly. Um, it was making me move slow. Anyways, we're getting close and trying to figure out how to get in on these turkeys. When all of a sudden a hen sparks up, like. Too close for comfort to the point where we're like, we we just have to sit down. Like we you, we can't move around anymore because now now we're at risk at busting the flock. So yep. we'll just sit down and kind of see what happens. And we're sitting on sort of one side of a uh, a gully kind of drainage feature that's on the side of this mountain, and opposite of us is, is a slope that's kind of facing up, and the, this drainage goes up to our left, and it actually kind of benches out, and and that's where these turkeys are. We're sitting there for a while and I call a little bit at him at the flock and you know, the, the flock's just hammering every time I call, but I knew that it wasn't going to happen. Like they were just happy to be gobbling at me, but they, I, I wasn't really feeling real confident that one was going to break off and just come check me out. Like I could hear a bunch of hens in there going off. They had what they needed. So eventually I'm like, oh, I'm just going to shut up and hopefully they'll just fade away and then we can swoop around and, you know, go in for another setup. And it had been maybe 10 or 15 minutes, and they're all still there. The hen's still clucking away. And uh, down to my right in this gully, and again, like four or five, sometimes even six feet of, of all, all kinds of thick understory-type brush. Can you pause for a minute? Mm-hmm. Seth, um, can you do sound effects? Yeah. Okay. Go ahead, Johnny. <clears throat> sound effects. <laughs> uh, well, he's got to fill in some gobbles right now. Okay. <laughs> That was pretty good. Now you'll 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 get your cues from him. Okay. All right. Yeah. There's a hen. The hen that we've been listening to, she's doing like a um it's one of those where you think it's a 
it's like a di- like between a cluck and a putt, but very soft. Kind of, yeah, but like fifty <laughs> times in a row. Oh, you better get busy. <laughs> <laughs> There's five. She's she's a yakking. Um. Anyways, we're sitting there. It's the turkeys are still kind of going, but we've been quiet for a while. And uh, I'm just le- I'm leaning kind of in the shadow of a of a great big uh, I don't know if it was a spruce or a, a fir tree something like that. It must have been two or three feet wide. And uh, down in this gully, kind of off to my right, I hear, and I wish I just could remember it better because it's like maybe the most exciting part of the whole story, but it's like, it's, it's in my mind, it registers as air coming out of an animal's mouth. <sighs> Very well could have been just that. Might have been a touch more Grr or growl <sighs> to it. Yeah. Like Some, something like that. Man, Dude, yeah, there. that's the last thing I want to hear when I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm there. <laughs> I'll just start shooting off in that direction. <laughs> right after that, I can hear footsteps. Like that? Well, they're uh, soft <laughs> pads. Softer, like on. a... Yeah, but a little bit of like cr- crunching of pine needles and mm. and and you know the the detritus. <laughs> oh, I'm getting in the mood now. Yeah, you're doing all, all my work for me, Seth. Thank you. <laughs> I tell Zach, I'm like, dude, get your camera ready because he had been you know running the camera a little bit since he wasn't carrying a uh, shotgun since he was tagged out. Is that hen still talking or no? Is she done? Yeah, they're all they're all still up there yakking away in a gobble every now and then. But your attention is not focused entirely different direction. Uh, yeah, no. At, at this point, I'm looking down the hill, and uh, I say, "Zach, get your phone out. I think there's a bear coming up the uh, coming up the draw." And the only reason I said bear is because just like that's sort of what I'm expecting in, in like this landscape, um, and something that I could hear footsteps so well. I figured, you know, bear. And a, a second later. I'm like, oh no, it's tan. I'm like, ah, it's just a deer, Zach. But you know, video it anyways. You know, it's gonna walk right by us. And I'm like, nope, that deer's got a tail. <laughs> it's a mountain lion. And uh, immediately, you know, Zach's like, holy shit, you know. And there's actually two mountain lions that we can see at first, and they're smaller. So this is all again happening fast. And as they take a few more steps, not spotted though, full color. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I- I'm guessing they're at least a year old. Yep. And at like what distance? Thirty, forty pounds um 15 yards ish 15 oh wow that's close. yeah yeah pretty close and they uh as soon as they sort of like we're kind of talking and maybe moving our heads a little bit and you know full cam we'll get our face masks on and they immediately catch our movement and the one first just sort of snarls and growls at us the, the lead cow yeah then it's little <laughs> then it's sibling turns and does 90 degrees so instead of going up this draw it turns 90 degrees and takes like three or four steps and like a low crouch slinking towards you you know yep. shape and then do, kind of then stops and does the same thing and it's like realizing that like oh i thought you were like the turkey i was about to that i'm hunting that i might pounce on but now i'm realizing you're not and i'm kind of pissed about it this is what i was reading from sure. its snarl so it snarls too, and then at that point I'm like, "All right, um, that's enough of that." And you know, I then took my shotgun from my lap and I pointed it at it, and that movement was enough to spook it. 
and then its sibling spooked and then mama spooked off too. But, uh, yeah, pretty neat little wildlife encounter. That's good fun, man. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Get your, get your, uh, get your heart bumping. For the sake of the story, I was hoping you'd have like a tugboat go by or like Christopher Walken show up. So it'd really <laughs> just test a, Seth. challenge Seth yes. more. Yeah. <laughs> was, I, was walking, I was walking the park for Seth. Man. <laughs> yeah, it was easy. There, you know what did keep the uh, gobblers gobbling though was the Canada geese that kept flying up and down the river. <laughs> oh, I can't. Good work, boys. Kind of like a seal. Good work. Uh, unfortunately, they spooked in towards the flock of turkeys, and we did not hear another. Oh, that shut them up pretty good. Oh, huh? there was no clucking, no yelping, no gobbling, and we hiked around that mountain for another thirty minutes, and they were gone. Just disappeared. That means the, it's time to be quiet. When a mountain lion runs by. Yep. They're out. You know, you hear all those great stories about people getting, uh, you know, their hats taken off top of their head from bobcats and lions and stuff when they're hunting turkeys. Yeah. Yeah. When they're, when one's stalking at you, you're not like, ah, this is a good opportunity to maybe get a real close, even closer (laughs) encounter with a mountain lion. Yeah. I had a good segue earlier. I don't know if you remember. I took it from, uh, like really seamlessly from uh, sous vide to meat scientist. This guy, there's a doctor that wrote us in, wrote into us. I don't know how he pronounces his name. Mark Slabaugh, MD, Slabaugh, Slabaugh. I don't know. Mark Slabaugh, MD. Could be Slabo. Slabo. Very articulate man. He wrote in uh, with a segue of his own. He said, there's a, there's a, uh, Recognizing it's a transition between disparate subjects. But he was tying together two things we were talking about that we didn't make a link on. One, we did an episode where we discussed in uh, what he calls excellent detail. The implications of lead poisoning on both wildlife and humans. What he's referring to is a discussion we had about. um, It is a well-known fact. What you do with this fact is up to you. But it is a well-known fact that lead from bullet fragments in carcasses has the potential can lead to raptor death. Um, and that lead shot on the landscape, uh, used to lead to waterfowl death. Now, whether it's, you know, the debate is lots of things die all the time. We're not talking about population. We are, are not talking about population level impact. Cars kill wildlife. Windmills kill wildlife. Fences kill wildlife. Um, the windows in your house kill wildlife and yes, bullets kill wildlife. What you do with that, um, like we kind of got into all that, right? And then we talked about how there just is not, in my view, and I've read more than most, there's no convincing evidence, um, that, that hunters, uh, are, that, that a wild game diet is giving you elevated levels of lead. Like no one's proven this. In fact, I think, you know, when you look at it, people are going to have a fit when I say this, but, you know, you look at like urban, like people that live in, in very urban environments often have higher levels of lead than people who live in rural environments, but eat nothing but wild game because you have lead from one, uh, you have all the lead in soil from leaded fuel, lead paints. There's a lot of lead out there. And so it's hard to say conclusively like, oh yeah, and people that eat a lot of de- deer meat have more. Because there's other factors such as like where you live that are more profound than what you might 
It's making sense. Yep. Totally. Corinne's nodding. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I grew up in a city. Who knows? Look at you. Who knows, right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I can see the lead bleeding out of your eyeballs right now. Uh, goes on to say this. He goes on to say that um, the connection he found is we later were talking to our guest Preston Pittman, who's been shot twice hunting turkeys. And he points out to say that, like, in the medical profession, you, d- despite all the Westerns you watch, in the medical profession, they are not eager to dig pellets and bullets and stuff out of people. You remove the pellet or bullet if its location is, like, of immediate concern. It's safer to leave it in there than it is to drag it out of there. Um, Jim Bridger, I'll point out, carried a... Uh, I think it was a steel broadhead. I can't remember if it was steel or flint in his shoulder blade for two years before a guy dug it out. And I think the guy that dug it out was the, he was like uh, part of the Whitman massacre and dug it out. And some people say it was like the first official surgery, like the first Western style Euro European style surgery to occur in the American West was when, you know, like performed by a doctor when Bridger had this thing yanked or cut out of his shoulder blade. But you generally leave him in there, but he does say folks who have retained bullet fragments should be aware that lead toxicity can occur over a long period of time. And blood levels can be monitored if they are aware of the risk. It is not an immediate thing. You can have a bunch of shotgun pellets in you and a long time could go by and all of a sudden you start to develop lead issues from carrying, not in your stomach, not where it's in your digestive tract, but where it's like slowly dissolving in your muscle can lead to trouble. So if you're carrying around a bunch of ammo, consider that. And plenty of people are, man. I was surprised by this. Gunshot wounds. An estimated 115,000 injuries in the United States per year. That's 70, nuts. What's that? That's nuts. 70% are non-fatal. Bullet removal, he goes on to say, bullet removal is not routinely indicated for victims of gunshot injuries with retained bullet fragments, which are called RBFs, unless it can be caused immediate morbidity. Damn. So Robert Abernathy and uh, Preston Pittman should both uh, get their blood levels checked. Periodic lead checking. Are you not carrying around a BB from when you were a kid? No. Oh, I thought you were. Oh, Mark also says this. He says, my personal experience with this comes as an ophthalmologist removing shotgun pellets from the face and orbits of trauma patients. I would say most commonly after being shotgunned during drug deals. (laughs) He says that my hope is that the average outdoorsman is better at seeking good follow-up care than those individuals. So maybe this will be useful information. Think about that, Yanni. Very useful information. Here's another one. This is really interesting. Guy wrote in that used to guide, uh, he does remote, maybe does, did, does remote uh, whitewater canoe trips, like extended whitewater canoe trips. And he says this isn't well known, but it's like known. That on a, on a river in Canada's Northwest Territories called the South Nahani River, there is a cave that holds the full skeleton Full skeletons of, of over 100 doll sheep that accumulated there from 2,000 years ago to about 200 years ago. 
and it's a the, the cave entrance is downward sloping. All the sheep are at the bottom of the slope. The plausible theory is that that slope would become icy and the sheep could make their way down in. They'd walk down into the cave, but then not be able to ascend the icy slope. And he said laying on top of those 100 doll sheep skeletons when he was there is a uh, porcupine. (laughs) (laughs) Dead on top of them. (laughs) He said it looked like he was up there feeding on them all. That reminds me, you know, that's such a long period of time, right? So you have 100 sheep that died over potentially, what, 1,800 years? Mm-hmm. When I was at the, I went to the, my first date with my wife, we went to the La Brea Tar Pits in LA. And um, we were kind of like, neither of us was from there, but we went there. Um, and it's a whole long story. I was living in Anchorage, but she was living, she was there for work and I went down. We went to the La Brea Tar Pits and, and there they have, you know, they had, they have a display, I think of 170 direwolf skulls that came out of those pits, many short, like many short face bears, many mammoths, dozens and dozens of, um, ancient bison forms, everything, giant ground sloths, everything just died in La Brea tar pits. And when you look at, when you read these numbers about all the stuff that accumulated in these tar pits, which is like in downtown Los Angeles. You think that you'd go there and just be like, and like dead stuff everywhere. Like, had you gone there a long time ago? But they're saying one occurrence every, I think I might get this wrong, but it's something like this. One occurrence every 40 years would have accounted for everything in there. Oh, wow. An occurrence being this. A baby mammoth um, gets stuck in the tar. Okay. A saber-toothed cat goes out to scavenge it. He gets stuck in the tar. Some vultures go to eat on them and they get stuck in the tar mm-hmm. and then nothing needs to happen for 40 years. <laughs> and you let that go for like tens of thousands of years and you wind up with where you dig down in a tar pit and it's whatever, 50 feet of yeah. packed bone. That's so interesting. But it's not like uh, you know, it's just like now and then now and then. So yeah, once every couple hundred years, a doll sheep falls into this cave, but then you go there and it looks like, Holy shit. Yeah. I don't know if you guys remember a long time ago, we had on a guest who, he was an anthropologist. Um, man, what the hell is that guy's name? Real interesting. He was an anthropologist who, um, among other things, like he would look for, uh, you know, lithic remains from up in, up in high mountain passes and stuff. He'd look for lithic remains of ice age hunters and, and other things, not Meltzer, but another, another anthropologist. Anyhow, he was explaining to us that like, when you're trying to interpret ancient kill sites, people look at the bones and people make wild extrapolations about, people make wild extrapolations like, oh, the skull was upside down. It must have been ceremonial, you know? And he was saying, man, you don't know. And one of the things he was explaining is, we'll just take a deer and put it, in, in order to say like, how to interpret bone dispersal, bone decay, you know, in, in order to interpret ancient archaeological sites, they'll just lay a deer out in the woods and then monitor it day to day to see like what 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 do we see happens? You know, how far do the bones go? What happens to all the bones? How, why how does the skull get flipped over or whatever? And just to kind of get a better sense, so when you're deconstructing a ancient kill site, you kind of can recognize well what's normal, what's not normal, and. There's this, this thing happened back in 2017 that, was, that, that we're looking at and thinking about is they were doing it 
with human remains. Yep. As a sort of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like forensic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. They have forensic, like, like yeah. forensic pathology or yep. something. He's like body farms for you know. If, I don't know if you discover someone who's. You know, you uncover like a skeleton. Or yeah, like, rates you know, of decay. Like, right, right. Like, how long has it been there? What happened to this body? Like, yeah. And uh, and uh, John McPhee once wrote a piece about uh, forensic entomology, where how how investigators can use the rate at which like larvae and stuff develops on 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 oh. human remains to get a sense of like time of death That's on so on crime scene investigations. So, anyways. They were doing this thing years ago, and they had all these they had human bones laid out in the woods to see what happens to Body them. Body farm, and they had a camera on it, and were surprised to see uh, deer. Deer would come up and gnaw the bones. So there's there's this footage of a deer chewing up a human rib bone. Yeah, it's just like hanging out of its mouth like a cigar. And it talks about how, um, according to the study, like ungulates often chew on bones. Now, usually when you see, you see they chewed up bones, you're always like, oh, it's porcupines, it's mice, whatever the hell. Ungulates chew on bones. And they prefer dry bones with a rectangular cross cut. But this was the first instance ever of a deer chewing on a human bone. But it gets to this interesting thing of um, when you, uh, like when they eat weird stuff. And Seth and I were just talking a minute ago about, I can't, it was some years ago, but it was a really famous trail cam image. There's a white-tailed doe coming through the woods and stops and starts eating nestlings, eating bird. I think they're robins. Starts eating nestlings out of a nest, plucks one out and eats it, which really makes you think differently about your deer meat. <laughs> it does me, man. Like we had that turkey the other day with that giant slug in his crop. I thought different of that turkey after that. Really? Yeah thought different of them yeah and like robert was saying about that turkey he killed with all those green and knolls 13 green and knolls in it oh, yeah no what's a green and all a little like lizard yeah long 13 of them wasn't it 13 yeah or am i making that up no that's right 13 he was having a feast oh yeah i'd have been like yeah i'd still eat him but i'd be a little bit like yeah but would you i'd eat rather be like like flowers and grains but acorns acorns yeah but like you eat stuff like would you eat like a deep fried anole I haven't, but I, listen, I'd eat it. I just would think differently of it. <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. I'd think differently of it. If I opened up a bear, a black bear, and I found that he had a bunch of people meat in it, I would think differently of the bear meat. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Anyhow. The single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys next to my scatter gun is the Onyx Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. I'm always using Onyx. I live by that stuff. I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. I'm using Onyx, and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Doug's, I'm in the navel, and I hear, pow, I'll like instinctively pull up Bubbly Doug's place on, on X, and I'll look at the topography, and I'll be like, oh, that sucker must be over in that little opening over there. Waypoints also, and the ability to share them, okay, comes in handy every spring. Whether that's revisiting old waypoints where I've been on birds before or sharing them, 
to buddies to help put them on birds. This app will help you find more turkeys. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you, too. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this turkey season. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow, so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. Go ahead, Seth. Um, Tell them more about what we're talking about. Yeah, there was a guy from Montana that wrote in and said that he shot a starling with an air rifle. Was it my kid? <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's a few questions I have about this. I think this must have been my kid that wrote in. He shot... <laughs> He shot a starling with an air rifle one winter under a crab apple tree in his neighbor's yard. Okay. So he's shooting over into his neighbor's yard. <laughs> S- sounds like your boy. This again. <laughs> I think this is my boy. Uh, white-tailed deer came in to the yard to eat the crab apples and found the starling that he shot. Um, deer picked it up in his mouth and appeared to be chewing on it. And that night, he recovered the starling from his neighbor. From his neighbor's yard. Like under the cover of darkness, presumably. (laughs) Another question I have, yeah. So he went over there. (laughs) I'm guessing at dark. He's like, I'm going to wait until it gets good and dark. (laughs) Yeah. Hopefully they're friends. (laughs) And uh, saw that the head of the starling was gone. Hmm. The deer had eaten it. Hmm. And I I mean, you go on YouTube and Google deer eating birds. It's just, there's no shortage of videos. Um. Of deer eating birds on there. God, it's unusual, man. 
Yeah, it's like what? Well, maybe it isn't. Yeah, right. That's what I was saying. Unusual earlier. seeming. Unusual seeming because by what mechanism? Like when you look at their dental structure, it just it's hard to, you know. Yeah, maybe I was saying to Spencer earlier, maybe deer are a little more opportunistic eaters than what we think, as far as like eating meat. Uh, uh our next guest though. One of my, you remember a long time ago, I was saying that the only thing that should be allowed to be on Instagram is, um, wild turkey doc. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like yep. Instagram should just be right, yep. <laughs> that you download the app and you open it up and it's wild turkey doc. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's what Instagram is. Like no one else should be allowed to be on there. If there was public outcry and people were like, there has to be one more Instagram page. I'll be like, okay, nature is metal. Um, we will allow nature's metal. It'll either be that or it'll be wild turkey doc. Yep. They can take turns. But nature's metal is more is far more prolific than wild turkey doc. Yeah. <laughs> it's my favorite, favorite, favorite Instagram page. So and good. what what brings us full circle is that there was recently a, a video of a, a of a young elk eating a gosling. For you, for you folks that I'm sure you, if you're sitting there with your phone right now, you, you got to go like go to nature's metal. Um, it is sometimes it, 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 like I have a strong. It's sometimes too much for me. It is predominantly um, our, our next guest, Rick, who who started and runs nature's metal, can explain. But it, it's predominantly I would like. There's a human element now. Like once in a great while, there's sort of like a human element. Like there's like humans enter the scene on nature's metal now and then. But generally, it's wildlife. It's like wildlife on wildlife of just some of the most like graphic reminders of, I don't want to say brutality because that has a moral, that sounds like moral condemnation. Graphic reminders of reality. Yeah. Of predation, of what goes into being alive, of the just giving of uh zero f's about <laughs> the well-being of your prey in the animal world just i'm doing a, a horrible job a, a, Help tr- me out. a truer documentation of the circle of life yeah bingo yanni <laughs> more than oftentimes i was gonna say like i have a pretty strong stomach oftentimes it's more than i care to see more than i care to see and you'll see when you go on there that it has a very next to if like um like uh, I don't know, like a pornographic Instagram page. It has more censored tabs yep. than any, anything I follow. Not that I follow. <laughs> that didn't come out right. <laughs> I don't even think there are, I'm guessing there are no porn. I, I don't know. I mean, you know, there's no extent to the internet. There's no end to it. But I don't know about anything like that on Instagram. But if there was, you can imagine it would be highly censored. Is what I'm getting at. But it be- and, and this has a, there's a lot of like what what do they call it like viewer discretion yeah, viewer yeah, discretion yeah. viewer discretion and you think it, but it's just animals it's like how is it sensitive you think if it's animals doing things to animals why is that why is that sensitive that that's like the sixty four thousand dollar question I think it begs that question why are we censoring yeah it's like I didn't know animals could do bad things yep huh. So we're joined by Rick, who is the founder, brains behind, I'm guessing, daily, the, the Daily Touch, the curator at Nature's Metal. Thanks for joining us, Rick. Yeah, thanks for having me. How do you, uh, why? Like, why and how? 
did this become a thing that, how did this become like your life's calling here to, to find this stuff and put it out there for the public? So when I was a kid, I, I couldn't get enough of those shows, like uh, all the Nat Geo stuff, anything on PBS, but they would always cut, like it would show the chase and then it would never show like what happens, like, oh, they just, did they become friends and, you know, <laughs> you never see them again, like, or what happens and you never see like what really the, the, there's nothing nice about what's happening. So yeah, they would cut to the feeding. Yeah. Like there's a chase and it's unresolved, but then like later they're feeding. Right. They show and you're like, like but what, but there's like a chapter missing. <laughs> yeah, totally. Right. So that, that was part of it. That's definitely part of what we wanted to showcase the entire story. I, I feel in my bones that it is disingenuous and a disservice to animals and the animal kingdom in general, that people don't show this stuff. But we also like try and stay away from certain things. Like I, I get a lot of submissions about like things that I cannot show on Instagram that will get me kicked off. And that's those are things that we learned from the other accounts getting taken down and stuff. Are you allowed to give us an example of something? Uh, there's one. There's one that I get sent every couple weeks of a crocodile somewhere in Africa. With human remains in its mouth, mm. just swimming down the, the like a river or something, but like it's the guy's head and arm sticking out of the crocodile's mouth. It's just something I can't I can't show that man. The account is has reached the point where I would like to keep it for as long <laughs> as I can. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> how many followers do you currently have on your account? It's insane. Uh, it's around three million, three point one, I think. Uh, it's above that. I see Corinne's notes that she has that you, uh, so you have a long relationship with, with photography too, because I didn't know this about you. You were a metal band photographer. I was in metal bands for a long time, like for 12 years of my life while I was doing this account, it was like my, my, I would do my day job. I'd be at rehearsal for three hours and then I'd go home and try and figure out what I was going to post tomorrow or something. And I, at the same time as I was doing all of that, I'd met all these other musicians and I would just show up to their shows and I'm taking pictures. Then I bought a camera so I'd have something better than cell phone photos. And then it progressed from there. That's also where the name comes from too. The music that I like is metal. It's always going to be that until I'm 90 years old. It'll be metal. <laughs> uh, I don't want to miss you. Usually when people say, that something's ironic. It's not. So I'm trying to think if this is actually ironic, but I don't know. Someone listen, listen to my sentence and tell me if you think this is ironic or not. Sure. You were inspired originally by what you felt were omissions in the sort of Nat Geo ish. I'm using this as a sort of like a, like a placeholder for, you know, high end nature documentary that Nat Geo was leaving out part of the story and you were filling in those blanks. But now you get, this isn't ironic, now you get material from the people who are capturing that material. And they're giving you the stuff that, like, they won't let me use this. Uh, it, it's too graphic for my outlet. It's too graphic for the media place I work with. It has to be out there. I'll send it to this guy. I don't know. Maybe it is ironic. You know what? <laughs> that's, that's a great point. There's not a lot of things that we won't show. 
but it's there are things that we can't. I understand why Nat Geo kind of censors themselves. Not everybody's into that graphic stuff. My limits are not their limits. Mm-hmm. My limits are like human humans being killed by some animal. That's my limit. I'm not showing that. Uh, Rick, what was the most impactful post that you've ever shared on Instagram? The first one Joe Rogan reposted. It was a woodpecker drilling its beak into these baby doves. Hmm. Like just hammering right into them. Really? I never not, saw that. Not one. a very nice post. You never saw that one? No. It's still up on the page. It's right at the bottom. It was the first one that Rogan went crazy. He went he went nuts. He 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 reposted on his Instagram. The account went crazy then, right? And I thought it was over. I thought I was like, that's really cool. I'm really happy that happened. But then he goes on his podcast a couple days later and starts talking about it. And then it really went crazy. So from there, that's that's where we got our all of our traction came from that one post elevated the account to where it is now, basically. While Steve is trying to find that. Uh, I'm watching oh. it right now. It's too much for me. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's brutal. <laughs> yeah, it's too much for me. Describe what you're seeing or what you can't stomach. What species is that? My initial, I mean, it's a, it's a woodpecker species. It's in, it's in a cactus. Yeah. So it's down south. He's got a uh, bird nest in a cactus, and it's just, just, put, just put, gradually, put, like, like very aggressively woodpeckering a baby bird. It's not dying quickly, and it's also consuming head matter as it just, yeah, it's a bit much. Not not in a bad way. Not in a bad way. It's just I wouldn't show my kids. Yep. Okay. That's my oh, of barometer. Of course. I, I wouldn't expect anybody to. I share some of your posts with my kids, but I don't let them do is then just start cruising around looking. I like share them like, here's yes. a thing, and then this is over. Does everybody understand? Like, we're gonna look at this and that's it. <laughs> and we look and we go away, you know. That's understandable, man. Who are some famous followers that you have? Like, do you have A-list celebrities that interact with the account? The most famous, I would say, the one, with, the person with the most followers that interacts with us. Well, Conor McGregor has interacted with us more than one time, like comments-wise. We had like some comments back and forth, whatever. Just like fun things. It's just crazy to be talking to someone like that. But the guy with the most followers that follows us has to be Bieber. It's got to be Justin Bieber. Which is the most surprising to me. The most surprising one of all of them is him. Huh. And he's actually reposted us before, which is like the craziest thing. Nature's Metal was on BuzzFeed because of Justin Bieber. Because he got in trouble for it. Because he posted something with a tiger with a monkey in its mouth. And he shared it. What the fuck are you doing, Justin? <laughs> it's that Canadian connection you guys have. <laughs> what is your attitude toward fake images, and have you ever been duped? Yeah, and in, in the beginning we were. Now my eye has gotten a lot better, but um, it happened a couple times. I'm not going to say all of them were, but one I remember for sure is um, these wolves were trying to take down this bison, and the bison hit the wolf, sent it flying, right? I was like, wow, that's a really cool photo. Totally fake. Totally oh, okay. uh, 
I wanted it to be real. I posted it like it was real. And it was a couple years ago. It's not on our account anymore. But I have a couple people that I message now to verify photos. Is this even possible? Because it damages our integrity by posting something that isn't true. And that's the last thing I want to do is post something that's fake. I actually got called out a couple months ago. Because there's a photographer that's notorious for staging his photos. Like he'll send a... He'll put a mouse on like a, a branch of a tree and just like basically feed a wild snake and just start taking photos of it. Oh, and he's been caught yeah. doing this. He's been caught doing this a lot, but sometimes they sneak through. Now I know the guy's name, so I, I just make sure I don't post anything by him because you can't, I, I don't know if they're true or not, but I just try and do my due diligence. You know, a, a thing I often think about, um, when when someone's in the business of social or the business of video and their very existence relies strictly on like an outside streaming or an outside video platform that's, that's user generated. So you, we always talk about YouTubers, right? Like if you're a YouTuber and strictly a YouTuber, you're one policy decision away at YouTube from going extinct. And when you've built like when you've done the work it takes and built this massive audience to consume something, you're still operating on a platform where you don't even have a seat at the table, right? Like there's probably not even a courtesy call the day that you get shut down. But have you gotten to a point now where you have a di- that you're able to have a dialogue with the platform? Or are you just sitting back trying to like figure out what they think and what their requirements are? And you're operating in the dark as to how to like walk this razor's edge of compelling, but not like too compelling. There is no communication with Facebook. Do you remember the monolith in 2001? Yeah. Space Odyssey. It's like trying to talk to that thing. (laughs) Uh, They just exist. They just exist on their own and you don't get, you don't get to speak to them. So to answer that question, it has gotten better, but it's still, you're still like talking to the, black wall you're right the policy decision could sink us tomorrow we and we would have no warning and no recourse so we're just hoping that we can expand like we're trying to expand to different platforms i got Um, you if that ever happens that could never it could also never happen because there is you said it earlier um it's animals these aren't these aren't malicious acts. These are animals doing it to animals. And that's why we try and stay away from humanity at all costs. Oh, Unless yeah, it's I, like, I always wondered about that, man, but I hadn't thought about that element of it. Yeah. It gives you like a, it provides a certain ground cover, man. Yeah. It's vital yeah. that we stick to animals. Cause if, as soon as we start showing humans getting hurt, that gives them grounds to, at least in my mind, but because we're so big, like because we've gotten to this point, we really have to watch where we step to stay alive. What in your mind is the most compelling criticism of what you do? Like what is the criticism that you think like, oh yeah, I can see that. There's something there. This actually wasn't a criticism directed at me. It was directed at some it was directed at a photographer that posted something that we ended up using. Okay. He said, You're doing the animals a disservice by showing them act in these primal uh, ways. 
Because and people would think that I, they were lesser. Me, yeah, I think that was his point. Um, I actually did read that comment and I thought about it for a while. And I'm not, I'm not 100% sure he's wrong. And I, I, I won't say he's wrong. But what I am sure of is not showing it kind of creates this like fantasy world where they don't do that. And I, that's the one thing I don't want to do too much for one person is educational to someone else. They need to know. Some people just need to know these things. Do you know that half of my audience did not, I wouldn't say half. A lot of them didn't know deer shed their antlers every year. Mm -hmm. They had no idea. That's like so soft core compared to what we do, but it's very, people were riveted by, they had no idea. So things like that, just extrapolate that to, to other things. Like you were talking about uh, deer eating birds. Squirrels do that. There's so many ground animals that eat other animals that just isn't shown. People need to know that. People need to know that dead bodies in the wild, it's like, it's like, uh, it's like dropping McDonald's in like a schoolyard. <laughs> How long do you think that's going to last in the school year? Not long. That might be the worst analogy I've ever come up with. No, I'm tracking though, man. I like it. (laughs) What's the ideal predator for you to post to like guarantee engagement? Like a shark, bear, croc, lion, snake, something else? Bears are up there. Definitely. I feel like we, we showcase lions a lot so they don't get the pop that they used to get. Tigers are big because... There's not a lot of tiger footage. It's hard to come by and it's hard to come by um, through the proper channels too, because you have, we have to ask permission for everything we, we post on our, on our page now. Sharks for sure. Uh, but the, the highest one seems to be like bears or like rare stuff. Like um, those, uh, those Japanese hornets. <laughs> Anytime we post anything about those Japanese hornets, it goes through the roof, huh. but they're very hard to come by. The footage is hard to come by. So. So your your audience is your audience is educated enough at this point to know when they're seeing something fresh. Oh yeah. There's people that have been following me from day one and I still get I still get comments it's like, oh that's the first time you've ever showed that animal. Wolverine footage is hard very hard to come by, which I would love to I'd love to show those animals, but there's not a lot of footage that exists of them. They're very reclusive. 99% of the shit that you put on there, I would never see in real life. Like yeah. it, it gives me, I, like I can go there to see things that actually happen that I would never see. Like, I, I don't know some of that stuff I would see and some of it I'm, I will see in the future, but like, uh, like a crocodile, like killing an anaconda or something. Mm-hmm. I just don't foresee myself ever visual, like visually seeing that in real life, but I can go to this page and see it. Yeah. Well, I was thinking about it. It's like, everybody wants to be like, Oh, it's too much for me. It's too much for me. But if you booked yourself fancy ass trip to, to Africa on a photo safari and you had two outcomes, you come home and be like, it was great. Look at all these pictures of sunsets and these grazing antelope. And then, uh, I even got a picture of a copulating uh, pair of lions. Uh, it was wonderful. <laughs> or you can be like, dude, I was at this pond and the zebra was there and a croc was there and a buffalo and they all started eating each other and ripping each other <laughs> apart. And holy shit, right? <laughs> like, 
What, what do you think the average person wants to come back from that trip saying that they experienced? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, the They're, latter. Yeah. They want to see the crazy shit. You know, if you see some pigeons on a rock wall, like on a cliff face, and you see a, right, a rafter, a peregrine flying overhead, mm-hmm. you're kind of rooting for the peregrine to come down and get one because there's just something to, there, there's something any of them wants to witness it. But one of the things that, like, there's, there's a lot of reasons. A lot of the photography on nature is metal. Like, the photography is wonderful. Like, these are, you know, a lot of it. I mean, some of it's just, like, ad hoc Joe Blow, right? But a lot of it's, like, skilled professionals mm-hmm. taking amazing photos. So there's that, which is great. Just good quality imagery. And there's a bunch of other things I like about it. But one of the things that might not be immediate, like, might not be readily, um, that might not readily come to mind to people is I'm also interested in the audience, like I'm, I'm as interested in the audience in the comment section as I am in the image because what I find so peculiar is how the audience of nature is metal is so comfortable, even celebratory of suffering in the animal world, depending on where the suffering is coming from. It's like the most jovial, backslapping, happy, making funny jokes about something that is an excruciating pain which is okay because the pain is caused by an animal. And you can only imagine if they were witnessing something that had a human hand in it, that joviality and happiness and like, yeah, get them, tear them to pieces. Let's make funny captions. That melts, man. And I'm very curious in the human brain um, why one is so fun for people and the other one is so distressing. Uh, And that's not something you're ever going to answer. But I like to look at it and be like, why do, why does that make people happy? They just like that suffering. If it's coming from the right place, that's funny. And I don't get it. There is an answer to that. (laughs) I I don't have it. (laughs) But when you look at that happening to a human, you could put yourself in that situation and be like, I don't want that to happen to me. But when it happens to an animal, it's like, well, if it, if, if that thing didn't do that, it wouldn't be eating. It would starve to death. That could, I don't know. That could be the answer. It is a, it is a hard question to answer actually. Yeah. And I don't, I'm not posing this. I'm not posing this as any sort of condemnation of it because it's not where it's coming from. Oh no, I know. And and I think, and, and I'll say this about, I'll say this about nature's metal is that, if you look at the totality, like the totality of the page, not, not just any image, but you look at the totality of the page, I would argue that far and away, it is a celebration of wildlife. It celebrates like tenacity. It celebrates a survival instinct. It celebrates strength. It celebrates diversity, right? Like biodiversity. I think like in its whole, it is a, the animal kingdom is amazing. It is mind boggling. It is gorgeous. It is stunning. This is a celebration of the animal kingdom. I don't buy that you would be a real serious, like engage, have serious engagement with the page and come out somehow having a diminished, I mean, someone could do this, but generally I think not have a diminished view of nature or have a thing where you think less of animals would be more agreeable to animals going away because they do these bad things to one another. Like, I, I don't think that that's what that's, I don't think that's what that's teaching people. 
I think it's like, it is a, in my mind, like a very clear celebration of the, when, what coming from its creator, it's like a clear celebration of like, holy cow. Um, we live on a, a stunning planet with staggeringly beautiful things happening on it. So I don't mean when that I bring really up is. that, yeah, when I bring up that idea about wondering about people, I'm, I'm really talking about audience. I'm not talking about the page. Yeah. At the end of the day, at its core, that is what nature is metal is about. The, it's the respect for the wild and the animals that survive in it. They, they, they figured out this way of making their way through the world the, the only way they know how. And we, we, we have houses and air conditioning and all this stuff to protect us from the outside when they live in it. And they, they, they have to have kids and protect their kids. And it, it's just, it's insane. It is absolutely insane to me that anybody can look at that and not think that that is the most amazing thing in the world. It's, it's mind boggling how they even, how we even came out of that. And how, how without technology and without our big ass brains, we would be screwed out there. <laughs> like absolutely screwed. If we met the wrong animal anyway. You got there, Bloody Mary? Oh no. Grapefruit juice? Kombucha. Oh, there you go. Drink oh, kombucha? I have. I'm probably the first person to ever drink kombucha. <laughs> I drank it. <laughs> I drank it in First two person ever in two thousand and four in Portland. I had some kombucha made in a girl's kitchen named uh, Abby. Second person, she drank it first. No one even knew what that shit was back then in two thousand four, <laughs> man. Um, Rick from Nature's Metal, and how do you find Nature's Metal? You go to Instagram, type in Nature's Metal. Easy. Yeah, that's how you find it. One word. Rick is metal. Rick, Nature's Metal. Thanks a lot, everybody, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Rick. All right, everybody. Tune in next week. The Meteor Podcast. Oh, you want to see some crazy stuff? Go check out my Instagram. Check out Seth's. Tell them what yours is. At Seth. signs underscore west. Yeah. It's not crazy, but just pretty. I have some nature's metal stuff on there. Oh, yeah. At least one. Hey, what you don't have is a farmer defecating off a rolling tractor. No. <laughs> which I have. I have a Neil, right. <laughs> Neil guy hung up in the fence, though. Oh, that's good. Here, ladies and gentlemen, Seth Morris. <laughs> Follow him on Instagram. All right. Thank you, everybody. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacova's is your stop before attending your next concert. All Tacova's boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. Yeah, Steve, they're very comfortable, they're very fashionable, and I enjoy wearing mine around the office and anywhere I go. Stop by your local Tacova's store, have a complimentary drink, and shop new styles. If you can't make it to a store, just visit tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. And find your new favorite pair of boots today.
I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.